Good morning, Bethel. How you guys doing? Uh, during that song, my, my new friend Melissa down here was singing a rap to that, uh, that thing there. And uh, is there any way we can get you up here to come and do that, Melissa? No? That was awesome. That was awesome. I enjoyed it for sure. Well, hey, how's everyone doing? Good? All right. Uh, for those that don't know, I don't know. I mean, my name was mentioned like three times in the service. So, But for those who don't know, I'm Tony Sorcy and uh, pastoral assistant here at Bethel Church. And uh, I have the privilege of bringing you God's word today and serving you guys. And um, it's, a, it's a joy. I'm very thankful to, to be up there, up here. Now, normally when our lead pastor, Steve, is uh, gone and somewhere else, uh, all of us who step in, we kind of do standalone messages. And we break away from the series. Um, and then once Steve gets back, the series uh, continues. But not today. Not today. We're starting a new teaching series today. All right, and uh, it's going to be in the book of Acts, and we are calling this series The Church in Transition. And the reason we picked the book of Acts, and the reason why we named the series Church in Transition are, are largely the same. As a church, Bethel, we are in transition. Things are changing. And we knew as soon as Mission Them was pronounced that we knew that there was going to be change coming, but now it's kind of real, you know? It's hitting home. Bethel Church, this church, is going to look a lot different a year from now. It's going to look a lot different five years from now. And there's a real possibility it's going to look a lot different a couple of months from now. For those of you that weren't able to join us last week, our elders uh, announced a new vision for our church last December called Mission Them. And the dream and, and vision of Mission Them is that by God's grace, he would be glorified in using us, Bethel Church, to seek to multiply God's kingdom in Northwest Indiana through multiple sites and through multiple partnerships. And as most of you know, last week, as Dustin announced already, uh, the exciting news and the possibility of merging with Community Bible Church in, in Cedar Lake. An exciting news, uh, for sure. The first step in Mission Them. And these are exciting times for our church. Exciting and uncertain as well. You know, like a lot of questions. A lot of you guys are asking questions. What does this mean? What does this mean for me? What does this mean for my ministry here at Bethel? What does this mean for us as a church? And I'm asking those same questions as well. And on behalf of the staff, I'll let you know, we're asking those same questions. A lot of unknowns. And I got to say that I'm kind of cool with the unknown right now, right? It's kind of exciting, right? I don't have all the answers and I'm cool with that. I'm enjoying the unknown of it all. Excited to see what God has for us in this And even beyond this, as the dream is multiple sites and multiple partnerships. Bethel, we are in transition. And so because we're in transition, we turn to Acts. And what we find in Acts is a lot of what we find amongst ourselves. Questions, uncertainty, disciples waiting for clarity, wondering about what's next, even some confusion and some fear. See, these disciples up until this point where we find them in Acts, they've been heavily invested in this mission And up to this point, it took some unpredictable turns, and it's going to take some even bigger turns. From its very beginning, the New Testament church has been in transition, following a sovereign, unpredictable, good, and loving God who's on mission in the world. Friends, here at Bethel, we are a part of this same mission. We are a part of this same church. We, too, are following a good, loving, sovereign, and unpredictable God as he goes out on mission into the world. And as a church on mission and in transition, we would do well not to go at this alone, on our own strength and in our own wisdom, but to look back at these first disciples and to study and learn from them on how they rolled with the change, on how they rolled with all the transition, and how they dealt with all the issues surrounding being a church on mission. 
So we don't have all the answers. And we don't know what's next. But God does. And we can be thankful that he has spoken to us. And he's revealed to us in his word. His will for all of life's circumstances. And we do well to go back and view our current circumstances through the lens of God's word. Amen? Amen. Now, before you jump into any book, you need to get a little bit of background. This is going to be kind of informational, okay? I'm going to let you know it's a little bit, so bear with me here. But uh, we need to get this before we jump into Acts. And so what I want to do is I want to cover uh, who authored Acts, what the purpose of Acts is, and what we find in Acts. Kind of like a broad overview. And then we're going to jump into the first 11 verses in chapter 1, okay? So a little bit of background, then the first 11 verses of chapter 1. First question, who authored Acts? The author of Acts is Luke, the same Luke that wrote the Gospel of Luke. And just briefly, let's ask this question. What do we know about Luke? In Colossians 4.14, it refers to Luke as the beloved physician. So two things we know. He was a fan favorite, right? He was beloved, like the beloved Cubs who took a beating from my socks the last two days, right? Fan favorite. That's right, Sox fans. Rise up. Rise up. He's beloved, a fan favorite. He was also a physician and a doctor. I actually threw that Cubs thing in there because my neighbor's here this morning and he's a huge Cubs fan. So take that. <clears throat> he was a doctor. We also know that he's a traveling companion of the Apostle Paul on some of his missionary journeys. Philemon 24 and 2 Timothy 4.11 link Luke with Paul in prison at Rome towards the end of the book of Acts. So he was with Paul on mission on some of his journeys. We also know from the opening verses of his gospel that Luke was not part of the original 12 disciples. He was not, he was not an original follower of Christ. He was a second generation Christian meaning he wasn't personally involved in the earthly ministry of Jesus uh, like the apostles were. But look at what he writes at the beginning of his gospel, even though he wasn't part of the original 12. Inasmuch, this is the beginning of Luke's gospel, inasmuch as many many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who were from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things you've been taught. So we see he wasn't an eyewitness, but Luke functioned as a reporter interviewing these eyewitnesses. He took the task of writing the narrative of Jesus' life and functioned as an investigative reporter interviewing eyewitnesses who were with Christ from the beginning. And he studied and gave himself to all the events surrounding the life of Christ. So he's kind of like a Ted Koppel or kind of like an Anderson Cooper, but he's not really about himself, right? He doesn't have a TV show. He's not about his own name. He's a humble guy. And the reason I can say that is if you look in Luke and Acts, he doesn't mention his name one time. Not one time. All all over Acts, we see this this word, we. We. Never mentioned his own name. So you can also see from this that Luke is preoccupied with the truth. Luke wants to know the truth. He wants to report the facts. He wants to write an orderly account so that we would have certainty about what happens surrounding the life of Christ And on that point, you can also say that Luke was a historian, as Luke and Acts are recorded histories of the life of Jesus and the events surrounding his followers in the first century. And many, both Christian and non, have respected Luke's writings for their accuracy and reliability. So now, after we establish that Luke is the author of the gospel that bears his name, it's really easy to link him to Acts, because look at the intro in Acts here in 1.1. 
In the first book, referring to his gospel, O Theophilus, written to the same guy, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach. So class, the author of Acts is Luke. For 10 of you that answered correctly, five gold stars, we will make sure that happens in the children's ministry wing somewhere. There's a chart. We'll make it happen. Good job. So once we've established that, that that Luke is the author of Acts, now we say, what's the purpose? What's the purpose in writing Acts? Well, Luke's purpose in writing the book of Acts is the same as his gospel. Luke and Acts are two volumes of a single work. And Luke's goal in writing Acts is the same that he had in his gospel, to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us and to write an orderly account. So in volume one, his gospel, Luke wants to give us an orderly and accurate account of all that Jesus began to do and teach. And in volume two, his, in the book of Acts, Luke is concerned with giving us an orderly and accurate account of all that Jesus continues to do and teach through these first disciples. Now I'm going to come back to this point a little bit later, but it's important to see this, okay? The book of Acts is about Jesus. It's about Jesus and what he continues to do and teach. Acts is not a book about some cool stories, about some courageous, fearless apostles and disciples that are going to get us all fired up to go and change the world. Acts is not primarily about these first 11, these these 12 here. It's not even about the early church. Acts is about Jesus. And Luke's purpose in writing Acts is to capture an orderly and accurate account of the continued story of God's eternal, unfolding, redemptive plan to rescue and renew all of creation from the effects of sin in and through the person and finished work of Christ. In fact, that's the goal of all Scripture, from Genesis to Revelation, to give to us an orderly and accurate account of God's unfolding, redemptive plan in this world. James Montgomery Boyce captures this well in his commentary on Acts. Look at what he says. He says, this plan does not have to do with the rise and fall of empires. It does not have to do with one race or people being more influential than another. The Bible does not even look at history as having to do primarily with individual successes or attainments. The meaning of history in God's, is in God's work. God reaching down into the masses of fallen humanity and saving some hell-bent men and women, bringing them into a new fellowship, the church, and beginning to work in them in such a way that glory is brought to Jesus Christ. That is the goal of Acts. That is Luke's purpose. And the book of Acts lays out just exactly how Jesus goes about accomplishing this mission of advancing his kingdom from Jerusalem to the end of the earth and how he's using us, his church his people, to bring about his purposes. So, next question. As we dig into Acts, what are we going to find there? How does it lay out? In Acts 1-8, as part of Jesus' ongoing mission, he gives these 11 disciples a command and he sends them out into the world. He says this, You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Acts 1-8 is great because not only here does Jesus send his church out into the world on mission, um, but it tells us just exactly how this mission goes from spreading from Jerusalem to the ends of the earth. So Acts 1a provides both the mission itself and the rough outline for how the book of Acts unfolds. And just to give you a quick, basic, broad overview here, this is how Acts unfolds, okay? From chapters 1 to 6-7, we see the development of the church in Jerusalem under the leadership of the 12 apostles. That's mostly what it focuses on. They're Jerusalem under the twelve. In Acts 6, 8 to 12, 24, you have spontaneous expansion. It's not planned. 
Spontaneous expansion to Judea and Samaria and other Gentile areas due to a great persecution. This section highlights the ministries of Stephen, Philip, and Peter. In Acts 12, 25 to 19, 20, you have planned geographical expansion into Asia Minor and Europe under the leadership of Paul, sent with Barnabas from the church there in Antioch. They're sent out on mission. It was planned. And then in Acts 19, 21 to the very last verse in Acts, the gospel continues to spread and prevail to the end of the earth under Paul, even though he's continually jailed and persecuted. So that's basically how Acts unfolds. And you see it there from Jerusalem to Judea, Samaria, and to the end of the earth. Okay? That's basically what we're dealing with. Now, one last point before we jump into the text. The book of Acts ends in the first century, towards the, toward the latter part of the first century, with the Apostle Paul in Rome, and he's jailed there. Rome is 1,500 miles away from Jerusalem, and that's where the book ends. And here we are today, May 20th, 2012, Northwest Indiana, 6,800 miles away from Jerusalem in the opposite direction. And what are we doing? We're worshiping Jesus as Lord, and we're reading his word. Bethel, Jesus is still on mission, still on mission in this world. The story's not finished And you and I get to be a part of it as his church. Church, are you ready and excited for what God's continuing to do in this world? Are you excited for how God's using Bethel? Just one piece of the puzzle and such a small piece of of the world and his big mission. And are you guys excited to dig into Acts? Amen? Yeah, me too. All right. Acts has 28 chapters total. We're not going to cover every single verse or even every single story or even every single chapter. We're going to be looking at key themes, key transition moments in the story. And today we're going to set the stage for the rest of the book of Acts in the first 11 verses. And we're going to find what I'm going to call Jesus' authoritative, powerful, messy kingdom mission. Okay? Jesus' authoritative, powerful, messy kingdom mission. Those are all my points right there. All right? All my points. I put them in my title just for you guys because I love you. I'm here to serve you. Now, with that said, let's dig in. What I want to do is I want to read the first 11 verses. I want to invite you guys to stand with me as we read God's word. Luke writes, Acts 1, verse 1. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day he was taken up, after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. To them he presented himself alive after suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard from me. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, it is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father is fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power. When the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up and a cloud took them out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. Amen. You guys can be seated. The very first thing that we need to see about this mission that Jesus sends his church on is that this mission is Jesus' mission. This mission is Jesus' mission. 
In the very first verse, Luke writes to Theophilus and says this. In the first book, referring to his gospel, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and to teach. Now, I want to emphasize the word began here in verse 1 because although the point is subtle and it's implied, the truth is huge. And it has huge implications for our lives. The Gospels are just the beginning of what Jesus has done and taught. The book of Acts is all about what Jesus continues to do and teach. Jesus is still on mission. Now, I want to show you from the first 11 verses here how Jesus, what he's done and what he continues to do. And we're going to do work, all right? So keep up with me, all right? Get those pens flying, and we're going to be following along in the text here. Notice Acts 1-3. It mentions Christ's sufferings. Sufferings here refers to his sufferings on the cross, where he suffered under the wrath of God and died to pay the penalty for our sin. 1 Peter 3.18 says it this way, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. We see that, that word sufferings there. Jesus suffered and died. The righteous one stood in the place of the unrighteous ones. That's you and I. And he suffered and died for us in our place. And he paid the price for our sins in full through his death. But after that, he was made alive. Look at what, look at Acts 1-3. Again, he presented himself alive after his sufferings by many proofs appearing to them over a period of 40 days. The claim of Christianity is that Christ rose from the dead bodily. The same body that died is now alive. And in rising from the dead, Jesus proved who he said he was. That he claimed to be the son of God, and that he was divine, that he was God become man. He proved that. And in rising from the dead, he demonstrated that his sufferings accomplished all that he set out to do. Namely, his victory over sin and over death. And see, here's why the resurrection is important. The wages of sin is what, class? Death. Romans 6.23. For the wages of sin is death. Christ died not to pay for his own wages, but to pay for ours. If he stays dead, the wage is not paid. Or he's not the sinless son of God that he claimed to be. But we see Luke reporting, Luke concerned with the facts, that Christ rose from the dead proving to be the eternal son of God and proving that the price was paid. Through him, we can now have forgiveness of sins and a right relationship with God. And although earlier we asked you, if you don't know Christ in here to let that cut pass, in this gospel, we invite you to that table. We invite you to this gospel. We invite you to have your sins forgiven and a right relationship with him. So now Luke here, the investigative reporter, goes on to say that Christ presented himself alive after many proofs, and continued to appear to them over a period of 40 days. Well, what were the proofs? Here's just a few. An empty tomb, a missing dead body. And on that point, just really, really quick, we're going to dig into Acts, and we're going to see Peter and John go in front of the same people that killed Christ. All right? Because they're preaching about the resurrection. All those leaders needed to do was produce a body, and this whole movement would be squashed. And we'd all be on a golf course right now, or bathing in the sun on the beach and not here worshiping Christ. But they couldn't produce a body. They couldn't. Empty tomb, missing dead body. Jesus physically appearing in the middle of a locked room filled with disciples, eating a piece of fish, cooking breakfast, allowing a doubter, allowing a doubter to come and touch the wound in the side and to see the wounds in his hands. 
appearing to more than 500 witnesses, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15. Christ is risen. And we don't need to wait till Easter to get excited about it. He is risen today. Jesus lives. Jesus lives. Amen. You can clap for that. You can clap for that. If we really got that, I think it'd be a little bit more crazy than just that nice little golf clap there, right? We're like, yes, absolutely. Christ has come. He's rescued us. And so how does this risen Jesus continue his mission? Look at 1-2. Until the day when he was taken up. Well, taken up where? Verses 9 to 11 give us more clarity. Look at this. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up. And a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven, as he went, behold, two men, angels most likely, stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand here looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. Verses 9 to 11 teach us that the risen Jesus physically and bodily ascended into heaven. And the ascension of Christ is important for Jesus' continued mission because of two things, okay? Two things. First one's this. It assures us that he's continuing his work at the Father's right hand. It assures us that he's continuing his work at the Father's right hand. Hebrews 7.25 tells us that Jesus is continually able to save and make intercession on behalf of sinners because he forever lives, okay? He is our Savior forever, and he continues to save drawing men and women to himself. That's what Christ is doing right now. He's ascended, seated at the right hand of the Father, bodily, physically, and he's, a, and he's gathering men and women. He's calling sinners to repentance and faith in himself, and he's continually interceding and being that mediator for us, his church, between, the, between us and the Father. And the second thing that it teaches us is this. It affirms both the promise of his return And it teaches us about the nature of his return. Check this out. Jesus ascended bodily, physically into heaven on a cloud. And the angel said in verse 11, this Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. Physical ascension, physical return. Bodily ascension, bodily return. Christ is coming back. He's coming back to this world. Both the promise and the nature. Now what's Jesus going to do when he comes back? He's going to rid the world of all the effects of sin. He's going to rid the world. He's going to take the dross off of this world. All the effects of sin. Everything that affects us. He's going to remove it. He's going to make all things new. He's going to save those who trust in him forever. And he's going to judge those who don't trust in him. His enemies. Hebrews ten twelve to 13 summarizes this all very well. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. And just a side note, here at Bethel, we don't, we don't talk about God's judgment lightly. We don't. We, just throw, we don't throw out terms like hell and judgment and wrath. They're sobering thoughts, sobering thoughts. And in light of it, we invite those who don't know Christ who don't have a relationship with him, who haven't trusted in his finished work on their behalf and experienced forgiveness of sins and the welcoming of the Father. We invite you to that today. Come and know. Come and know his love. Know this forgiveness and be welcomed into his family. Go from, go from enemy to child and realize that by God's grace, he sent his son, Christ, to come and rescue us. So how else does he continue his mission? 
Check this out. Through his people, the church. Look at 1-2 again. After he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. So he he chose these guys. What are the commands? Acts 1-8. You shall be my witnesses to the ends of the earth. Not go witnessing. Okay? Not go witnessing. You shall be my witnesses. It's not something we go and do. It's It's who we are. We are witnesses. Witnesses of what you've seen and heard regarding my life, death, and resurrection. And we, we too, like these 11 here in Acts 1-8, we too, like these same 11, we're witnesses. We're witnesses of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection through the orderly, accurate testimony of the Scriptures. We are witnesses. We are missionaries. And we have witnessed and experienced this here this morning. Christ has come, and he's lived, and he died, and he rose again, and he ascended, and he's coming back. And the crazy truth here is that Jesus has included us in this mission. Part of his plan includes us. And here's the implications. There's purpose in that. There's urgency in that. There's intentional living in that. Not a single moment of my life is wasted in light of that truth. Not a single moment. Profound implications for our lives. And if you're here and your life's just a mess, you just have no purpose at all, and you're just wandering around, right? Specifically, young men who wake up every day at the crack of lunch and who have just no purpose, no drive, no desire in life, or any of us, we're pursuing our own mission. Come get on Jesus' mission, have purpose. But here's the big point I don't want you guys to miss this is Jesus' mission. He has done, is doing, and will do all the hard work of mission. He's the one that has suffered and died on the cross for our sins. The righteous for the unrighteous, bearing God's wrath for sin in our place. He's the one whose work was sufficient to pay the penalty for sin and be raised bodily from the dead. Proof of his divinity, proof of his victory over sin and death. He's the one who's ascended physically into heaven to sit at the Father's right hand, able to forever save sinners and intercede on behalf of the church. He's the one who's continuing his mission by sending the church empowered by the Spirit into the world. He's the one who is one day coming back in the same way that he ascended to rid the world of all the effects of sin and make all things new, destroy his enemies to God's glory. This is Jesus' mission. That's the big truth. That's the big truth. Amen. Absolutely. Amen. So where do we see in Acts the risen, ascended Christ doing his work? Well, here's just a snapshot right here I have for you of where we see Jesus active all throughout Acts. We see Jesus active in selecting an apostle to replace Judas. That's Matthias. He pours the Holy Spirit out on the church. He sends the Spirit. Adding people to the church day by day. 247 said that the Lord was adding to the church day by day. Interceding on behalf of believers, 754 to 60 there. Appearing to Ananias, appearing to Paul, healing a paralyzed man, receiving worship from the church, much like he has this morning from us. Stopping a magician who is opposing the gospel, opening people's hearts to believe the gospel, leading and guiding and directing his church. Specifically chapter 18 and 23 where he comes to both Peter and Paul, discouraged apostles, and he says, continue, keep going, keep preaching, for I have many in this city, I'm still accomplishing my mission. As the church, this thought is comforting. Taking the gospel to the ends of the earth, taking the gospel to your neighbor, taking the gospel to your co-workers is not a responsibility that God has placed solely on our shoulders. Taking the gospel to the ends of the earth. It's not. Imagine being those original disciples. How in the heck are we going to pull this off? Jerusalem to the end of the earth. 
He's the one accomplishing all his good pleasure in this world. This is Jesus' mission. And we get the privilege and the grace and the mercy to be co-laborers with Christ. This frees us from an overwhelming guilt and also gives us confidence to be his witnesses in the world, trusting that Christ will do his saving work. We are witnesses. Next point. Jesus' mission is an authoritative mission. Notice some of the language here Jesus uses in, in the first eight verses. After Jesus had given commands to the apostles whom he had chosen, and while he was staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait. Verse 8, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea, Samaria, to the end of the earth. Do you notice the authority here? Like, who is this guy bossing everybody around and saying these words like this? I mean, look at how Jesus gives the same command in Matthew. Matthew 28, 18 to 20. And Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples. All authority on heaven and earth. Go make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe, obey all that I've commanded. And behold, I'm with you always to the end of the age. Quick note on that. How are you with someone to the end of the age if you're not risen? He's with us. He goes with us. We go with him. All authority on heaven and earth has been given to me. Why? Because Jesus Christ rose from the dead. That's why. When the guy who dies gets back up and walks out of the tomb, that guy wins forever. Forever. End of story. Done. That guy's got all authority on heaven and earth. You beat death, you win. What you say goes. So where does authority come from? He's beaten death. He's beaten death on our behalf. I'm with that guy, right? I'm with him. I'm with... I'm with the guy who loved me and died for me and got back up. The risen Christ has all authority. Whatever he says goes. It's important to recognize that Christianity, on this point, it's a historical religion. It's based upon proven historical facts surrounding a single person, Jesus. Christianity is not based upon an idea or a philosophy or a moral code or a teaching. It's about a person, Jesus And this Jesus, who Luke the historian focuses on here, really came, really lived, really died, really rose again, and really ascended into heaven. Jesus does not appear to these first disciples after his crucifixion and give them a set of ideas, right? Or a planned sales pitch. He appears before them risen. They all witness his death. And here I am, risen, right? All authority on heaven and earth. And it's in that authority that he calls all men and all women everywhere in all places in all cultures at all times to repent and trust in him. Either this is extremely arrogant and this guy is nuts or this guy is the risen, exalted, authoritative son of God who's come to live, die and rise on our behalf. I'm going with the latter, right? I'm going with the latter. Now look at how, look how Luke records this very same command, very similar to Acts in his gospel. Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning in Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things and behold, I'm sending the promise of my father upon you. But stay in the city until you're clothed with power from on high. We're not talking about some guy who came and taught us a better way of living or gave us some moral codes. We're talking about Jesus who died and rose again. And until someone else dies for sin and gets back up from the grave, 
I'm clinging to Christ and I'm trusting in him. Who else? Who else? Tell me, what else? What else rivals that in this world? What else do we have? What else do we have? Everything fades. Everything breaks down. Everything gets old. Everything dies. Except Christ. He doesn't die. Christ, that's it. Hear Paul's words from Philippians 2. Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. Being born in the likeness of men, being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that's above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. To the glory of God the Father. See, authority has everything to do with who you are and what you've done. This last week, me and Brad, Pastor Brad and I, we needed to make a decision. So we're sending some emails back and forth. And uh, he was kind of on the fence. And I was just like really passionate. I really had a strong opinion about this one thing, right? And Brad emails me back and he says, well, Gary knows a little bit about it. I'm going to make him make the final call. And I'm like, what's up, dude? Like, you're not going to go with what I'm saying? Like, I'm, I was a little offended in that moment. Like, dude, I'm telling you, this is, this is what I'm, I'm saying, right? And Brad's almost in that moment. He's just like, man, who are you, right? You're 31. You've been working here since February. <laughs> right? It's like, right? It's like, what? He's like, Gary Butler. Why? Why does Gary Butler get to make the call? 40 plus years in ministry. Experienced man. Wise, right? Gary gets to make the call. Authority has to do with who you are and what you've done. Who's Jesus? He's the eternal, incarnate, sinless, crucified, risen, exalted, authoritative Son of God who's calling all men and women everywhere to repent and trust in Him and come and experience the joy and the freedom of forgiveness of sins and love where we can have Him as our Father. What a joy. Next point, Jesus' mission is a kingdom mission. Jesus' mission is a kingdom mission. We use this term kingdom in our mission Uh, them vision statement when we say this we want to multiply god's kingdom in northwest indiana when we say kingdom what does that mean you know a lot of us have heard that term we've used that term what does it mean notice this exchange uh, between the disciples and jesus starting in verse six so when they had come together they asked him lord will you at this time restore the kingdom to israel he said to them it's not for you to know the times or seasons that the father is fixed by his own authority but you will receive power when the holy spirit comes upon you and you will be my witnesses. Now, while on earth, Jesus repeatedly taught the disciples about the kingdom. Repeatedly. And it seems from Acts 1-3 that the teaching about the kingdom was the primary focus of Jesus' time spent with these men. That's what he primarily focused on. And yet, even though all this teaching from Christ about kingdom, it seems that they're still a little slow to grasp this idea. It seems like they missed it. Look at their question. Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? Notice the assumptions about God's kingdom here in this statement. First assumption is this, that the kingdom would be a political and territorial kingdom. A political and territorial kingdom. Will you restore? They want to go back to something they had in the past. Second assumption is this, that the kingdom would focus solely on one nation and one city, Israel. Will you restore the kingdom to Israel? Third assumption is that Israel's territorial kingdom would be established immediately. These disciples wanted to go back to the days of David, right? Where Israel was a strong nation, a mighty nation, political and militarily. These guys want to get like all Avengers on these Romans, right? 
They want to just, they want to just pick up swords, hop on horses, head straight to Pilate's house and just conquer right then and right there. These guys are amped and ready to go. And Jesus just rocks their world. Look at what he says. It's not for you to know times or seasons that the Father's fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, all Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. He says, listen, don't worry about when all this is going to happen. God is sovereign over that. This isn't a political kingdom. We're not going with swords to defeat Rome. I'm sending you as my witnesses into the world with the good news that I've defeated sin, Satan, and death. And Jerusalem is just the beginning. My kingdom is going to spread to the end of the earth. And members of my kingdom won't just be Jews. This isn't about one race. We're going to gather men and women from every tongue, every tribe, every nation, and to the ends of the earth. These disciples had no idea what Christ had accomplished and what he was yet to accomplish. The nature and scope of this kingdom was far greater than they had ever imagined. Now, before you have a kingdom, you have to have a what? King. Got to have a king. Bethel, we have a king. And his name is Jesus. And he's already conquered our greatest enemies of sin, Satan, and death through his life, death, and resurrection. And our authoritative king has already risen and been exalted. And he's taken his seat on his throne. And the kingdom of God is about Jesus establishing his rule and reign over all creation, bringing order and justice to the ends of the earth, and being worshipped as Lord by all. And this kingdom has already come and has yet to come. The kingdom is both already and not yet, right? The kingdom has already come. It's already been established and inaugurated in Christ. The kingdom is already visible in and among his people, the church, as we joyfully submit to his rule and reign in in our lives. And we joyfully live lives that are all about him. The kingdom rule and reign of God is made visible in his church and is expanding to the end of the earth through the mission of the church, as the people of God spread the gospel of Christ. As Jesus continues on this mission to gather to himself men and women, he transforms even more sinners into worshipers who from the core, from their, from their, from their hearts, long to submit to his rule and reign in their lives. That's where the kingdom is already. The kingdom of God is already. But we also recognize that it's not fully realized. And it's easy to see this in the world, but you know where it's even more easy to see it? In my own life. It's most evident to me in my own life. As from my core, I long to submit to the God who's loved me and died for me, but I still have indwelling sin, and I still choose lesser gods and saviors over Christ every week, every day. But it's something that I long for. As we look out in this world, it's easy to kind of point the fingers and see where God's kingdom is yet to come. We need to take those fingers and point them inward. And we see that the kingdom has come in us, but not yet fully. Not yet fully. We still battle with indwelling sin. We still fight the flesh. We're still sinners because we have this body. And one day Christ is going to come back. And we're going to see him as he is, as First John tells us. And we're going to shed this body of sin. And we're going to receive a glorified body just like his. And we'll be with him forever. Listen to Revelation 21 about this kingdom that's yet to come. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. beautiful, like a bride. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death shall be no more. 
Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And we see that this is what we struggle with now. Tears, death, mourning, crying, pain. One day it's going to be no more. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I'm making all things new. Also he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It is done. I'm the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. And the one who conquers will have this heritage. And I will be his God and he will be my son. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Christ comes, he makes all things new. He saves forever those who trust in him. And he comes back to judge his enemies. And here's the great grace in all this. This kingdom is already. And Christ, through his church, is reaching out to our friends, to those who we rub shoulders with, and telling them, listen, you don't have to suffer that second death. You can have sins forgiven. And you can experience this kingdom right now. And when Christ comes back to fully establish this, it's fully realized, that'll be a joyful day for you. Not a fearful one. Next point. Jesus' kingdom mission is a powerful mission. Commenting on these original disciples here in chapter 1, D. Martin Lloyd-Jones said this, A handful of people whom the authorities in in Jerusalem regarded as ordinary, simple, unlettered, and ignorant men and women. There were just 12 men essentially and a number of others with them. They had nothing to recommend them, no great names, no degrees, no money, no means of communication or of advertising. They had nothing at all. They were nobodies. And yet what we know to be fact is that this handful of ignorant and unlettered people turn the world upside down. And how do they do this? How do they do this? Under the authority of Christ, who's on mission, we go with him by the power of the Holy Spirit. Look at Acts 1, how Christ talks about the Holy Spirit here. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard from me. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. That that word baptized, immersion. There's going to be a whole new infusion and giving and immersion of the Holy Spirit. I'm going to send him over you, and he's going to come and indwell you and empower you. Acts 1.8. But you will receive power, dunamis. It's where we get our English word dynamite. When, he, when, when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you're going to be my witnesses from Jerusalem to the end of the earth. We don't go at this alone. Under Christ, by the power of the Spirit. Now, next week, the plan is for Steve to come and talk about the empowered church. And he's going to go deep in the weeds on how the Spirit really empowers the church for the mission of the church. But what I thought I would do is I would just give you guys a big overview of the Spirit's activity out of the book of Acts. And with just a couple small implications, Okay. So from what I can tell, there's 56 mentions of, Act, or of the Holy Spirit in the book of Acts. And here's just a list of what we see the, the Spirit doing. He empowers God's people to witness. He works to bring glory to Christ. Bold proclamation of the gospel. The promised gift of his indwelling. Boldness in the face of opposition. Empowering all Christians to speak God's word. Providing wisdom and discernment. Strengthening and growing new leaders. Empowering deacons for acts of service. Convicting men and women of sin leading and guiding God's people in the mission, confirming salvation among new groups of God's people, comforting God's people, establishing the apostles' authority, and affirming and appointing elders. This is just a snapshot of what the Spirit does in the church. Something that I see around here every week, a lot of this same stuff, and hear stories about these same things. And so two things regarding the Spirit I want to point out just from this. One is this. 
It's powerfully practical. It's powerfully simple. Look at this list. The Spirit empowering us to do very practical things. Open up our mouths and talk about Jesus with boldness. Leading us to talk to specific people. Giving us strength for simple tasks of service. Boldness in the face of fear. Comfort giving us wisdom. The Spirit is powerfully practical. His voice is subtle. And He leads us into the most practical and simple things each and every day. The second thing is this. He's unpredictable. Unpredictable. John 3, 8, Jesus says this of the Spirit. The wind blows where it wishes. You hear its sound, but do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who's born of the Spirit. These disciples had no clue what they were heading back to Jerusalem to wait for. No clue. And they had no clue when Jesus says, you're going to be my witnesses, what was in store for them. Had no idea. And what I want to challenge us with is this. And I think I, I speak for a lot of us in here. All right? You can tell me afterwards if this isn't the case. We, unlike the Spirit, are very predictable. Very predictable. I was challenged in a, in a book that I recently read on this point. The author said this. Look, Check this out. This has been kind of pushing at me over the last few weeks. The disciples in the New Testament often followed their Lord expecting unplanned change. We, on the other hand, like to manage our lives in order to eliminate unplanned change. We regulate everything through clocks, calendars, PDAs, smartphones, routines, and rhythms. When our planned course of action is disrupted, we frequently respond impatiently and angrily. What if you began to expect unplanned change and interpret it as an opportunity to rely on the Spirit? Obstacles, challenges, and trials would take on a very different meaning. Instead of becoming inconveniences and injustices, unplanned change could become an opportunity to rely on the Spirit to discern God's will and purpose in our circumstances. Chief sinner right here. Chief sinner. You should see my calendar. It's stupid. Stupid, right? Everything planned. I'm always so busy running to and fro. What, it, what would it be like among us if we were more sensitive to God's leading, His Spirit's leading, His powerful and predictable Spirit? If we'd yield to His voice instead of argue with Him and reason Him away. How many times have you felt God prompting you to do something and you just so quickly just argue with that and reason that away? I can't. I've got to be somewhere in 10 minutes. I've got this thing I've got to do, right? What would it look like? Last point, okay? Last point. Jesus' mission is a messy mission. God is using sinners by his unpredictable spirit to bring about his purposes in the world. And as you can expect, it's going to get messy. And it is messy. Let me give you just a quick rundown of the first four chapters in Acts. Quick snapshot. Acts 2, spirit comes at Pentecost, draws a huge crowd to the place where they're gathered. Peter gets up to preach boldly. Jesus saves 3,000 right there, right on the spot, right there. How's that for a launch day, right? How's that for a merger? Yeah? right? Us 11 guys, we're going to assume these 3,000. Great. That's going to work out really well, right? The assimilation guy's going nuts. How are we going to get all this information, right? Addresses, send them mailers and how are we going to check their kids in for children's ministry? My gosh, 3,000 first day. And then at the end of chapter two, it says the Lord was adding to their number day by day. Apparently God didn't think it was enough. He just kept adding. Acts 3 and 4, Peter and John heal a lame man from birth, sitting outside the temple in Jesus' name, creates a huge scene. Peter and John stand up to preach. The same guys that were responsible for killing Christ come and arrest them. They bring them before the Jewish Supreme Court. Same guys that pushed to kill Christ say, quit speaking about the resurrection. Peter says, I'm not. I'm not going to stop. I'm not going to stop speaking about the resurrection. They beat them and send them away. 
Not after Jesus saves another 2,000 after their preaching. We're up to 5,000 people in the early church. That's just the four, first four chapters, right? First four chapters. Jail, beatings, martyrdom, miracles, missionary journeys, persecution, preaching, planting churches, salvation, relational separation, stonings, breaking out of jail, bold preaching, arrests, miracles, tears, shouts of joy, sacrificial giving, false teachers, appointing elders and deacons, doctrinal debates, being rejected, chased out of town. It is messy. It's messy. And not only on top of that, Acts is the historical backdrop for all the New Testament letters. How jacked up were the Corinthians, right? It gets messy. This is a messy mission. From our perspective, it's a mess with a lot of unknowns. But God has a sovereign purpose in the mess. There are no unknowns in him. As we move forward and mission them, Bethel, let's keep things in perspective. This is about Jesus. Let's not be like those disciples who were initially selfish and territorial. Multiple sites, multiple partnerships, multiple cities. This isn't about one church. This isn't about one building. This isn't about Bethel. All authority on heaven and earth has been given to me. Go in that boldness and confidence. Be my witnesses. I'm the one that saves. Trust me, I'm coming again. Hold on to the gospel. Keep Jesus central. Hold everything else loosely. Things are changing. Things are going to get messy around here. And I'm glad to be a part of it. To God's glory. Christian in the room, trust him. Get on mission. Non-Christian in the room, trust him. Come get on mission. Let's pray. God, thank you for today. Thank you for your word. And Jesus, we just want to praise you. Incarnate, eternal, son of God, come to live, die, and rise on our behalf. Exalted, authoritative, all, all authority on heaven and earth given to you. You send your church. God, thank you for saving us. God, I pray for my friends here that don't know you. God, I pray that you'd work in their lives to do the same work and invite them into your mission. God, you're using us. You're using us. And you're unpredictable and you're powerful. God, help us to roll with this and follow you and be sensitive to you. God, blow our little lives up. Blow our little comfortable worlds up. God, I pray that you would teach us, teach us unpredictability and teach us to follow you wherever you lead. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand together and sing this.